Hi, and welcome to Authorise, the podcast where writers speak. My name is Kevin Hillier, and another fascinating author to meet this time around. It's his second book. The first one was called Drugs, Guns, and Lies. The one we're going to talk to him about today is Gun to the Head. The author is Keith Banks, who's one of Queensland's most decorated police officers and a man who put his life on the line on many occasions. We'll talk to him about that and a whole lot more and the ramifications of uh, doing what he did for a living for many, many years, how that's affected him uh, along the journey of his life. That's coming up in just a moment. Once again, thanks to our terrific podcast partners. It is CSCG, the people to talk to uh, when you want to talk finance. CSCG are the people you want to talk to. Check out who they are, what they stand for, what they can do for you and how they can help you by jumping on their website, cscg.com.au, or by jumping on the phone and giving them a call, double nine seven four eight triple three. They're always available to have a chat about your financial situation, whatever it is, tax, superannuation, whatever. Double nine seven four eight triple three. Uh, cscg.com.au. Keith Banks is the man we're talking to today. A fascinating story, a harrowing story in many ways, and uh, one that starts with uh, the title of the book, which kind of says it all. Gun to the head. I mean, it's it's such a beautiful description of what's inside this book. Because it's Thank you, Kevin. it's Thank it, you. it's your it's your story, but bloody hell, it's harrowing. Yeah, and uh, and the scary part is it's all true. And the gun to the head. You know, it was a title I, I talked about with my publisher, and uh, and and I think it's it's actually perfect because it's the fact that I held a gun to the head of many violent criminals in my career, but also it was um, a psychological gun to my own head that I didn't realise was there until uh, until it was probably too late. And that's why I think it's such a great title because the book takes us inside as much as you possibly can, and you do it beautifully. I mean, some of the some of the descriptions are in particular uh, with the op- Operation Flashstand stuff. Some of the descriptive mm. ways that you've taken us inside uh, the you know that Virginia house um, is is quite quite. Uh, it, it makes your heart race. You feel like you're there, which is a beautiful piece of writing and a beautiful piece of description. But um, yeah, it, it's I, I don't know how you did it. How do do, do you Kind of after you'd written the book, do you look at it and go, "How did I do that?" <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as I, I hope I've, I've um, written, and thank you for your kind comments, mate. I'm, I don't regard myself as a writer. I, I just sit, literally sat down during lockdown and and wrote. Um, but um, and obviously did a bit. But uh, the job itself, you know, as I hope I've gotten the message across, the job itself. I was I was addicted to adrenaline. I wanted to be at the sharp end of policing, and I wanted to be a super cop um, all my career. Mm. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think as I've written in the book somewhere, you probably should be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Um, you know, that that morning, that that's a job. Tactical policing was a job that, that was the sharp end of the spear, um, and it was a job where we actually dealt with the most violent crims or crooks that uh, that Queensland had ever seen. Yeah. Um, and none of us. None of us were prepared for uh, for a gun battle where we lost one of our own. Um, you know, we'd certainly trained to a high level. We were ready to go, all of that. But to actually lose your mate in a, in a gunfight um, is harrowing. That's the best description. I didn't get the impression, though, reading the book, that you thought uh, or any of your, uh, you know, uh, fellow officers thought you were bulletproof. No, we knew that the vest we were wearing um, was substandard. Um, we were well aware of that, and uh, and that's just what professionals do. Um, and this isn't—I I need to make the point. Whilst it's my story, I, I hope I've also made the valid point that I was—I was with a, a like-minded team of very, very professional operators. Oh yeah. Um, 
we all knew the risks and uh, and we went and did it anyway because you know to to take someone like that off the street was uh, was vital. He was a violent man, and it was only a matter of time before he killed someone else. Yeah. Your, your first gun, Drugs, Guns and Lies, talks about you as an undercover cop. So he came out of being an undercover cop and decided to join the, the tactical response group. Um, is that yes, going from yes. the deep end of the pool to the deeper end of the pool? <laughs> that's, that's good. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. And, and and it was just, you know, as a young man, I I just craved uh, – I craved – to be in a part of policing that was the most exciting and adventurous and fulfilling. So I volunteered for undercover with that, probably in that really naive blush of youth where I wanted to do something to fight the drug trade. I just didn't realize the impact it would have on my life and and more importantly, the lives of other undercovers. You know, some of them came out pretty damaged. Um, I was pretty much okay. The only... The only issue I had when I finished undercover is an addiction to to adrenaline and the fact that I'd started drinking. I'd never had an alcoholic drink before in my life before I did that job. Yeah. Um, and and it was really I didn't want to settle. And, and I'll be as as nice as I can. Any police officer who wants to stay in uniform or you know do regular police work, I, I applaud them. I think that's fabulous. Um, however, it was never something I wanted to do. I wanted to do the exciting stuff. Yeah. And uh, and I pursued everything where I could do that. And, you know, being paid to jump out of helicopters and, you know, fire submachine guns and blow things up, you know, is, uh, was a bit of a boy's own adventure, actually, Kev. Yeah. I mean, you're at the, you are at the pointy end of the stick, but you're also at the, the absolute da- most dangerous part of, uh, of policing. How did, how did you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? Up until, up until Operation Flashdance, pretty well. You know, I think I, I, just, I just accepted it. That's where I wanted to be. I loved the work. We did literally hundreds of high risk jobs where no shots were fired because yeah. we could um, we could pretty much gain the advantage really quickly. Um, after Operation Flashdance, when Peter was uh, Peter was murdered um, by that offender, I um, I started to change. I I developed a real darkness, and and I wanted to seek revenge as much as I could on every operation I could. And that really that was a defining moment of my life, Kev. That uh, that changed me from the nice guy that I was into probably a harder and uh, harder operator who was prepared to pull them on and shoot them. Yeah. Um, and I'd never been in that, that mindset before. And that's what I, you know, the message behind my book and I hope is that the damage, the, the psychological damage that can be done to people if it's not treated or um, accepted or talked about is long lasting. And that was the case with my experience. It took me 25 years to come to terms with it. And we're talking about PTSD, which I think you beautifully describe as not a disorder, it's an injury. But for me, it's, yes. all, it's almost like it's almost a spectrum uh, because no two cases are the same. Mm, yep, exactly right. I, um, I have a lot of – my network includes now Special Forces uh, veterans from uh, – Australian Special Forces veterans who fought in Afghanistan yeah, and Iraq. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I talk to these these brave young men. Um, I talk to them a lot, and and I've I've been fortunate enough to um to be able to speak uh, to their cohort as well. And and you're right, the the overall symptoms are similar, but each person reacts differently. Um, and it's it's it was something that we just didn't know existed back in the 80s and back in the early 90s. No one really knew what it was, and and for a long time, um, I just thought I was a bit nuts. <laughs> and there were probably friends of mine who would agree with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, but I really thought I was alone, and uh, and I thought the injury that I had was something that I may have been exaggerating. I just didn't know. 
And it wasn't until years later, as I say, when I, I finally um, had a bit of a meltdown and started seeking um, counselling support that, that I came to terms with, with the fact that, yeah, I did have, uh, I did have a post-traumatic injury yep. and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Now, that's, a, that's a big stigma to get over too, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah, because as an alpha male, um, yeah. particularly in that world, it's difficult to admit that you're not as perfect as you think you are and that, in fact, um, that things have had a toll on you. That's the, the part and parcel, I think, of, of any tactical and specialist police and, indeed, general duties police see a lot of things as well that, that messes with them. Yeah. But certainly in the tactical area, it's, it's probably magnified. We'll probably come back to Operation Flashdance a fair bit through this, and I'm sure it, this happens to you in your own life. Uh, go back to that. Was it was it the kind of realisation of your own mortality in that moment when, you know, you're holding the hand of, of, of one of your mates uh, uh, who's who's dying in front of you virtually? Was was that the was that the trigger for you, uh, that all of a sudden it became a real thing where that could have been you? Uh, yeah, I, yeah that's, that's, that's part of it. What I did suffer from was um, was what's called survivor guilt. So oh, because okay. I survived, I actually I, I for years literally literally almost every day would have thoughts where I'd go back to that morning and think if I could have done something differently, I should have done something differently. Had I controlled things differently, then the outcome would have been different. And it's a classic it's a classic PTSD PTSI um, symptom. So. It wasn't so much in becoming aware of my own mortality because I, I do write openly about um, a very dark period I went through where I had suicidal ideation. And it was more the realisation that I didn't want to put any of my friends or teammates in that situation again, which really changed my view of the world. And I just developed all of those classic symptoms of anger, way too much drinking, um, more anger, and really seeking out the most dangerous situations I could. And I don't know in hindsight whether that was some sort of subconscious death wish or not. Yeah. Um, there's a whole, you know, there's probably a whole 10 years of, <laughs> of counselling or theory to go behind that. But it was certainly a realisation, I guess, that the world was a much more serious, or the outcomes could be much more serious than I'd imagined, put it that way. Yeah. I'd always thought that, you know, highly trained tactical teams, we'd be on the top of everything and, and none of us would be injured like that, and uh, and that was the wake up call. Were you disappointed with the way you were treated after Operation Flashdance, which uh, finished up becoming a coronial inquiry into, into that? Were you were you upset yeah. that that they questioned your your you know the way you went about it? Yeah, it was we, we became victims of uh, of a keyboard warrior well before the internet, I suppose, but we became victims of. Um, of lounge chair experts who, who attacked us in the press, who certainly, you know, wrote articles about how they would have performed things differently. And, and because of coronial inquest, in this case, one of the other guys was so badly wounded, he couldn't, he, uh, had, he needed something like nine months to recover before he could actually attend the inquest. We were gagged effectively, so we weren't able to respond at all. And on top of that, unfortunately, in the police force, it's my experience, you either meet the best people in the world or the biggest idiots in the world, yeah. and there's no grey area. And we were we were also internally criticised by, you know, the classic fat copper who, uh, who'd stand at the bar and, uh, and you know, criticise us for what we should have done and what we shouldn't have done. So all of that compounded with me. And in those days, Kevin, there, there was no support. There was no psychological counselling. 
and, and to the department or the police force's defence, I suppose, this had never happened before, so they didn't really know how to treat us. But we just went straight back to work, essentially. Yeah. So we so we had the criticism both from inside and externally, and that that added to I know it added to the others, uh, the other operators' anger as well. But from a personal perspective, it really, really angered me. And it would be fair to say that at that stage, the Queensland Police Force was not seen as the shining light of uh, uh, integrity at that particular uh, vestige of history. Yeah, absolutely. The Fitzgerald Inquiry into Corruption, which I, most of us welcomed, unfortunately the on-flow effects weren't as positive as they, they should have been, that was happening, and it was happening in the week that we we launched the um, the raid on, on this uh, particular offender's house. And I'm still convinced, and I've put this in the book, I'm still convinced that the timing of that, we were told when to do it rather than choose our own time, which was normal operational procedure. Yeah, I'm sure that the timing was to attempt to take public attention away from the front page of the Courier-Mail that was reporting on the corruption inquiry. I have no proof of that, but it's too much of a coincidence yeah. for me. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, the publicity was there. It took the attention away from the corruption inquiry, of course, with a dead copper. You know, and that that still probably detected in my voice, mate. Or even all these years later, it still makes me very angry yeah, that, no, uh, that people would have done that. Was sitting down and writing the book, and you said you did it during lockdown. Was it? And you, you you do mention this in the book that it was kind of a cathartic experience for you. How painful was it? Ah, uh, yeah, another another great question. Um, it, it was. It was. It was confronting for me, particularly to write about Operation Flashdance. It was also confronting for me to honestly write about how dark I became and how almost homicidal. Well, probably not almost homicidal my mindset was. The cathartic effect was brilliant though. You know, at the end of it all, I, I sat down and, and read through the manuscript and went, Phew, and it was almost like a um, like a weight had gone off my shoulders, you yeah. know, the, the fact that I was able to write it. The next scariest thing though is uh, <laughs> is actually having it published and have people who never met me um, read pretty much some innermost secrets. And um and I'm okay with that because the underlying message is to all of those people out there who suffer this type of insidious injury to help them understand that they're not doing it alone. Those nearest and dearest to you, and you've obviously talked to them about it, but was there even some of the stuff that you wrote about in the book that you had to tell them about after you'd kind of got it out of your system in the book? Um, there they... were a couple of things. Yeah. yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, my, my daughter's particularly hadn't known about my um, my suicidal ideation uh, as a result of Flashdance. So I, I told them that, and they're incredibly loving and supportive. And and really the fact that, yeah, the darkness, I guess, uh, and and some of the, uh, the attitudes that I had probably didn't come as a surprise to them, having grown up, you know, with my... Grown up with the impacts of, of my injury, I suppose, and, and my emotional distance in their childhood, they... They knew that there were issues, but um, there were just those couple of things they didn't know the details of. But again, sitting with them and talking with them is is a great uh, a great healing process. You know, the power of talking is is immeasurable. Yeah, your peers. What sort of reaction have you got from them, and what sort of reaction are you expecting from them? Well, to, to be honest, the first book when I wrote very openly about police corruption, um, particularly in the drug squad and other areas, I expected. I expected some negative responses, but overwhelmingly it's been positive. I, I've not had one negative comment. 
and it's been uh, incredibly supportive. So, you know, now living in Melbourne, um, I still have all of my network of, of veteran police in Queensland, and they've also been very supportive about uh, about the second book because I've, you know, I've bounced a couple of chapters off people, and I've, you know, had the phone calls and and checked facts and details, and uh, and I'm expecting some great support as well. Yeah. When did it change that that police all of a sudden became okay to shoot? When did that happen? Always existed. It always existed. The you know the the right to use deadly force is has always been enshrined in the criminal code and in any any crimes act or or similar around the country. It was more that we didn't do it a lot simply because the threat wasn't there. And and in the eighties, and you being a, an old Brisbane boy, even though you moved, uh, I understand in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, you would have you would have seen the increase in armed holdups and violent armed holdups oh, that happened yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. You know, long before security screens, etc. And and what we saw was an influx of southern crooks who were prepared to use violence and, and use firearms. And uh, and we'd had a couple of instances before Operation Flashdance, but but when that happened, and uh, and we realised that you know that they were prepared to shoot at us um, and shoot at us without any cause and warning, essentially, that's when, I can't speak for the others, but I certainly decided, right, that's it, um, you know, it's on. And and I think a lot of other, and that's when also the knowledge of firearms and the operational survival training started to happen around the country, and, and it just evolved into that. It was we were meeting violence with violence. The only problem was that that created a bit of a cycle then because some crooks knew that if they confronted the police, the police would shoot them. So then they started to, to even ramp it up even more. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thankfully, thankfully that decade, because um, there were a lot of police shootings around the country, thankfully that decade ended, although you still have some. And, and you know, it's my fervent wish that no police officer ever fires their weapon at another person in anger because it's, um, it is life impacting. Every second television show you you look at, you know, there's whether it's Coin of the South or a Netflix uh, a Narcos doc or whatever, kind of glorifies it to a point to uh, the you know the the death and and uh, the kind of killing that goes on. But when you're in that moment, like you were in Operation Flashdance, there's nothing glamorous. There's nothing uh, uh, you know sort of Hollywood about what's going on. Are we a little in, uh, desensitized? As a, as a public, to, to how raw that is when that happens in real life? Yeah, I think you are. I, th- I think the public is, and, and I see that with I see that with commentary, you know, where there's a police shooting where a person may be armed with an edge weapon or a knife, yeah, and the police shoot him and kill him yep. or her. And the, and the immediate outcry is, why didn't they shoot him in the arm or the leg or fire a warning shot? That's, that's just Hollywood influence because in that, split second that you have to make a decision, even if you tried to aim at a limb, you're going to miss, you're probably going to miss, and two things are going to happen. You're going to die because a person who, who gets near you with a knife can kill you very quickly um, and slash, you know, and it's and I won't go into graphic detail, but I've seen some horror, horrific wounds. And the other thing is if you miss and that round then kills a, a, a bystander or a civilian, that's, that's a terrible outcome. Yeah. So... You actually need to be trained to make sure that your training takes over and you fire as much as you can to eliminate the threat and that means stop the threat. And I and I think and I watch the same sort of movies, but I'm I'm a bit different, I'm quite critical of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um but in, in that moment, you know, in the in Operation Flashdance where, where we shot and killed the offender, that was pure training. It was absolute pure training. 
And I have to say, and this may sound callous to some of the listeners, but I've never lost one second sleep over over shooting him. Yeah. But, I, you know, I've lost a lot of years of grief over losing my mate. Yeah. And that split second in that in Operation Flashdance where you didn't shoot his the criminal's partner who was in the mm. bed and uh, came up out of the bed with both hands in the air, that's that's instinctive training uh, that, that you must look back at that and go, God, I was a, I was a hair's breadth away from shooting that woman. Yeah, I think about that a lot actually. Um, and she she was his accomplice. She was sentenced to I can't remember how six or eight years or something for for driving him to armed robberies and, and being his accomplice. And she yeah. was as complicit as he was. In that, yeah, you're right. It was training. It was moral compass, but more training. Um, no weapon, can't shoot. But there was a part of me that wanted to because I could hear my mate in the corner after he'd been shot five times and, and and I knew I knew that it was it was pretty bad. Yeah. And that uh, that human revenge, the lizard brain, um, took over for a, a microsecond <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, thankfully I didn't act on it because that that's not who I am anyway and that's not uh, it's not what my training was. I don't think she'll ever realise unless she reads the book and I doubt she will. I don't think she'll ever realise how close she was. Yeah. What, uh, what, if anything, do you have to do with the tactical response groups of, of this era um, in terms of talking to them or, or sharing your experiences, Keith? Yeah, um, mate, I'm, I'm very heavily networked in, in the current CERT in Queensland, um, who are the, uh, the special weapons, special emergency team. Um, I have a number of friends who currently are members and I have a number of friends who are former members. Um, I have great uh, friendships with the special operations group guys in Victoria. Um, and yeah, and we, you know, I've known nothing formal, but, uh, but there's a lot of, you know, conversation you can have that, that, that people listen to over a few beers, which is exactly what I do when I get the chance. Yep. And, um, and what I'm hoping is that, you know, the, the book will give me the opportunity to expand that network. So for me, the intent of writing the book was, was not about, you know, um, being well known or any of that rubbish. It was, it was really giving me an opportunity to talk openly about post-traumatic stress. And really engage further into that whole um, network, I guess, and, and and really reinforce the message. And the message is that you know this this is okay, and you're not you're not making it up. You're not imagining it. You're not doing it by yourself. And that recovery is absolutely possible. Yeah, you'd still have dark moments, though, wouldn't you, Keith? I, I still have some some dark days, mate. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I understand them now, and I can see what's bringing them on, and I'm able to cope better. Every now and then. Like a lot of other um, you know, post-traumatic sufferers, I'll, I'll just go away for a couple of days on my own, maybe run on the beach or, you know, do some – I'm still a martial artist, so I do some karate yeah. training or, and then just have a couple of beers and look at the sunset and, uh, and yeah. then I'm okay. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a nice way to handle it too. Look, it's, a, it's an unbelievable book in terms of when you think about as you're reading each page and flipping through it that this is real, this actually happened. That's, you know, you can look at crime fiction and go, oh, yeah, 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 they're making it up. But this is actually real stuff. It's it's quite breathtaking. Uh, and uh, congratulations to you for surviving. And, uh, uh, I mean, at the end of every day, you must look in the mirror and go, how the hell am I still here? Yeah, sometimes I do. Sometimes yeah. I do. No, it's, it's um, amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Congratulations oh, on you. writing it because it's it's very it's very raw. Um, you've certainly put yourself out there, and uh, and that and that takes a lot of guts as well. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. Good on you, Keith. Uh, all the best for the future, mate. Thanks for spending some time with us having a chat. Mate, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Good to chat. Take care. My thanks to Keith for his time. Uh, he does have a website. If you want to find out more, you can check that out. KeithBanks.com. 
not a you. A harrowing story, but one I think uh, I think you'll get a lot out of when you read the book. And uh, I've certainly gone back and grabbed a hold of the uh, the earlier book too, Drugs, Guns and Lies, to have a read of that as well. Uh, a fascinating and uh, and really important life that uh, the man has led. And let's hope that there's much happiness for him uh, in the future and not involved with guns and, and drugs and, and, and any of that stuff, uh, hopefully for Keith in the future. It was terrific to have him on the program. Uh, thank you for listening to the Authorised Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed this one. And, of course, support our terrific podcast partners. We all have uh, financial uh, questions. We all have uh, financial needs. We all have financial uh, uh, taxation things that have to be sorted that CSCG are the people you should talk to. Give them a call. Double nine seven four eight triple three. Jump on the website and find out what they're all about and who they are. Simple as that. CSCG.com.au. Till the next time on the Authorised Podcast, don't forget, go back and check out some of our previous episodes as well where you found this podcast. You might find something else, something else of interest in there uh, to have a, a listen to. I hope you'll do that and I'll talk to you next time on the Authorised Podcast. My name's Kevin Hillier. Take care. 